Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Minimalists Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn, and boy, oh boy, do we have a treat for you today. Today's episode is featuring our good friend, Colin Wright. Now, for those of you who don't know Colin, we often refer to him as the third minimalist. We've gone on a bunch of tours with him. We started a publishing company with him back in 2012, called Asymmetrical Press. And in fact, Colin is the first person who introduced me, and and thereby introduced the minimalists, to this thing called minimalism. It was about a month after my mother died and my marriage ended. I, I met Colin the same way we meet everyone these days, on Twitter. And, um... I saw this tweet, actually it was a retweet from someone uh, that I was following, and it was something from Colin, and he said he was a minimalist, and I didn't really know what minimalism was in context of living, in context of a lifestyle. I mean, I knew about minimalism in terms of literature and art and architecture, but what was this thing called minimalism with respect to how one might live his or her life? And he said he was a minimalist, and, and that allowed him to pursue what he was passionate about. And then I, I really dug into his life, and he had some videos online, and everything he owned fit into a backpack. In fact, he owned 52 items. And I, I really admired that, but I certainly didn't desire to live that same exact lifestyle. I didn't want to live out of a backpack. I enjoyed owning a kitchen table and a desk to write at and certain things that just wouldn't fit into my life or certain things in my life that wouldn't fit into the the peripatetic writer's life that, that was Colin. But this thing called minimalism allowed him to pursue what he was passionate about. And, and for Colin, that was travel. He was just wildly passionate about travel when he was... Uh, in his mid, early to mid-20s, he was successful in a very narrow sense. He, he ran a, a branding and design studio in Los Angeles, and he was working over 100 hours a week. I mean, just this amazing you know, Puritan work ethic, but he wasn't satisfied. He wasn't happy. He didn't feel fulfilled, and he didn't feel like he was pursuing what he was passionate about, and he was making good money. But he left that all behind so he could travel the world. And he learned how to travel to a new country every four months. And that's how I found out about him, is he was running this blog called Exile Lifestyle, which you could find at exilelifestyle.com. And he didn't even pick where he was going to travel to because he wanted a fresh experience each time. And so he basically let his readers at his blog vote on where he was going to go next. And so when I first connected with him on Twitter, I think he was in New Zealand perhaps, and he had just been in Argentina and was headed to Iceland and India and other places after that. But every four months he moved to a new country based on the votes of his readers. And again, not a lifestyle that I wanted to lead, obviously, but I really admired it because he was now focused on what he was passionate about. And how he did that, 
he got the excess stuff out of the way. And when he got the excess stuff out of the way, he started also getting his priorities back into order. Well, Colin has become a really good friend of mine over the last uh, six or so years. Like I said, we started a publishing company with him. And he is... Uh, he just turned 30 not long ago, and he's published almost uh, 33 or 34 books at this point. I've lost count. And uh, he's just a prolific writer, a phenomenal blogger. He also has a great YouTube video ser- series called Consider This. And he just started a podcast, and it's called Let's Know Things. And you can find that podcast wherever you get your podcast. You can also find all the show notes over at letsknowthings.com. I think Colin is really intelligent and he's very articulate. And I'm just, I feel great that he finally has a podcast out there because he's, he's going to use this medium to do really wonderful things. It's a lot different from the typical format that you hear from me and Ryan where we, we tend to answer questions or we'll banter back and forth. He really drills down into specific topics. And we selected a particular episode from his podcast that is an unpublished episode. He's going to let us use this today to share with you. It's an episode about suburbia and how we can consider both sides, the good and the bad, of suburban living and really how it came about and where do we go from here as a society. And so I really hope you enjoy uh, this podcast. Oh, and uh, one more thing, just a quick note before we get started. For those of you who are interested in improving your writing, whether that's writing emails, writing the next great American novel, or just improving your writing for your blog, I have a one-day writing workshop. It's a couple hours long coming up later this month. Uh, there's still a few seats left of that. You, you can find all the details over at howtowritebetter.org. All right, y'all. I hope you enjoy this episode with Colin Wright. It's from his podcast, Let's Know Things, and it is called Suburbia. Enjoy. I grew up in the suburbs here in the U.S., first in the Bay Area, and then in the Midwest. Both cases were surprisingly similar. The yards in Missouri were much bigger than they were in California, but we still lived in neighborhoods removed from economic activity. My entire world was accessible. You didn't wander into the neighbor's yards, perhaps, but you might walk through them, or there might be the neighbor with the yard that was just the right size for playing football with the other neighborhood kids. And so if they gave you permission, you spent a lot of your time there. In both cases, as far as I could walk in any direction, there were just more houses. They sometimes varied in size or design. Maybe there's that one offshoot street where all the rich people lived. They had swimming pools and such. And the other where maybe it's mostly folks who make a little bit less money. There was some variety within the homogeny. But despite knowing the word suburbs as a kid, I never really took the time to think about what it meant. I guess I supposed that everyone lived in a situation much like mine, though perhaps in apartment buildings rather than ranch-style homes, with nearby parks instead of yards, with fences around them. The idea that you might be able to walk out your door to a corner store or a downstairs coffee shop never crossed my mind. The suburban model has flourished, but it's not the standard everywhere you go. 
There are places with mixed types of real estate and a greater amount of publicly accessible geography. There are places where there's more diversity of economic classes and cultural heritage. There are places that were built before the actually quite recent suburban boom, and others that have been built in the years since, as we've come to recognize the downsides of such an organizational system. On this episode, I want to talk about suburbia and why so many people believe that it sucks. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The starting point for today's episode comes from a blog entitled Likewise a Blog. And the article itself is very aptly named Why Suburbia Sucks. Now you can read the article to read the 10 or so reasons that the author believes that suburbia sucks. And these are very good reasons. They are a lot of the same reasons that many developers use for why we should reduce the suburbs and a lot of the same reasons that individuals give when they talk about why they want to move away from the suburbs, either into a more rural situation or a more urban situation. But what are we talking about when we talk about suburbs? Because I think we probably all know the word suburbs, but even though you can picture kind of what it is in your head, it may not be that you have a decent definition for it. I, I certainly didn't know the whole story before I started researching for this episode. When we talk about suburbs, we're actually talking about something that started back in Roman times. The Roman cities had suburbs, little walled cities that were outside of their cities, and they were essentially little towns that orbited the larger cities and kind of coasted off of those cities' economic wakes. So what you would do is work in the city and then live in these little walled settlements outside of the larger city if you couldn't afford to live within the city. Which sounds kind of familiar, right? I mean, that's, that's what suburbs are today. They haven't always looked like they look today, but the, the modern version of the suburb emerged in the early 20th century in London. And London, through a decent chunk of modern history, has been the most populated and population-dense cities in the world. And at the beginning of the 20th century in particular, it was considered to be incredibly densely packed with people and very filthy and scummy. And what they did is they completed a series of trains that led outside of town. And as a result of these trains that were leading outside of the city, people found that they could live further from the center of all of that economic activity and still make it into work each day. And so these forms of mass transit, in particular trains and underground trains, enabled the birth of the modern suburb. Now, it also helped that at the time, England was recovering from World War I, and they were looking at their people, and they were looking at particularly how unhealthy a lot of them were from living under the conditions that people were living in, that the lower-income people in particular were living in within the city. And they started romanticizing the days back in the day when they lived in cottages and they lived in estates. 
And they decided that they were going to have to spread out a little bit if they wanted to have healthy young men who could afford to defend them in times of conflict. And so the, with the government's blessing, developers started building further and further out. And they built according to a model that was more like those more traditional English estates. Rather than building a bunch of apartment-style buildings right up next to each other and piling them on top of each other, they built more squat houses, and they built yards around them. They gave people lots of space in which to play, in which to participate in sport, and that would allow them to stay healthy and strong. Around that same time, around just after World War I, New York and Boston had the biggest suburbs in the world. They were, had already fleshed out certain elements of their mass transit systems, and so they had these sprawling cities and so they had neighborhoods shooting off in every which way that had access, relatively easy access, to the center of town. And people would leave at the end of each day after going to work to essentially just go home and sleep before hopping on the train again. They considered these homes in the suburbs to be little more than just a place to go sleep at the end of actually living your life for the day. And so they spent as little time there as possible. Now that changed dramatically in the United States, around the world too, but particularly within the United States after World War II. And a couple of things conspired to make that happen, conspired to really blow the suburban experiment up to the next extreme. One of those things was the veterans were returning from overseas, were returning from wherever it was that they were fighting and coming home and deciding that they just wanted a quiet life. They wanted to chill the hell out for a bit. They wanted to relax. They wanted to have a nice home. They wanted to have a front porch. They wanted to have a car in the garage. And they wanted to have a yard where they could keep their dog or where their kids could play. They wanted something simple. They wanted the simple life. They didn't want to be around a bunch of people and the noise of the city. And it just so happened that around the same time, the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, began to provide loans for several different types of people, but for veterans in particular. And these loans essentially allowed them to get houses, and all the veterans had to pay up front was 1.75% of the base amount of the loan. And so most of them could afford that. So they started scooping up houses left and right, and that fed the surge in development of these suburban homes, homes that were not just places to go and sleep while you spent most of your days in the city, but rather a place to go live. You wanted to just turn this place into a little slice of heaven. Another simultaneous development was the completion of several skunk works projects, including the Manhattan Project, which led to the development of the atomic bomb. These skunk work projects, which is just the term used for kind of a project kept separate and in a lot of cases secret from everybody else, these were developed in their own little towns. And as a result of being able to operate these little towns where all of the people who worked on them lived there, essentially little planned communities, the government felt that they had a much better understanding of how to essentially build these pre-planned communities that would allow people to live in such a way that they were both productive and happy. But primarily, and this was something that was largely unspoken except by the people involved in the lead-up to the Cold War, 
They were also convinced that in spreading out people in this way, removing people, particularly people that they considered to be vitally important, which were primarily scientists and people with a lot of money and prestige and such, keeping them spread out and away from cities would prevent a potential enemy, say somebody else that had an atomic bomb, from destroying a great deal of our intellectual and human infrastructure with one weapon, the way that we had when we dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So in an effort to spread out our human wealth, there were a lot of different ways in which the government, not, not necessarily directly subsidized, but certainly supported and greased the wheels for the expansion of the suburbs. And then from the mid-50s onwards, there was the further development, the expansion of something that we'd already started, but like a hardcore expansion of the American highway system. This highway system was intended to connect the cities and towns of the United States to each other for purposes of trade, but also, again, there was that military underpinning. There was the desire to be able to move around our weaponry and our people and anything else that might be important in case we were invaded or in case we needed to invade somebody else and move this equipment and these people around very quickly. And so the development of the highway system served the same purpose within the U.S. that the trains and the underground trains served in London and in New York and Boston. They became kind of an alternative to a mass transit system, but something that allowed a far greater diversity in living locations for the people who wanted to work in cities. Now, the side effect of this, the sudden ability to live in these different places and to live in these ostensibly much more pleasant situations, places that were not so filthy and crowded and loud, places where you didn't have, perception-wise at least, you didn't have the, the crime issues that you were beginning to have in a lot of the cities. And then, in addition to that perception, there was also the perception that was popular then, thankfully not as popular now, that all of these immigrants were coming in and ruining our cities. And there was something called white flight within the U.S. that essentially had a lot of white people moving from urban environments into the suburbs in an attempt to get away from these different colored people and these people with different religions and different values. And so that certainly fed the development of these communities as well, and later led to a lot of issues because a lot of suburban areas were essentially segregated, if not officially, some of them officially, but if not officially, certainly in practice, because the boards that regulated these areas and decided who could move in wanted to keep them pure and wanted to keep the quote-unquote riffraff out. And to them, again, a very different time. That was people of different colors and religions and so on. And so that's one of the original reasons that the suburban areas became associated with cultural and economic and in a lot of cases racial homogeny. A lot of these places were perceived at least to be kind of like country clubs where you were in or you were out. And if you weren't one of us, we don't want you to be here. And we all moved here to protect our kids, to protect our families, and protection in the way that that word was being used at the time was protection from outside influences and ideas, dangerous things. And just to, to give you an idea of why at that time we were looking at things, our enemies, we had just finished a war with fascists, 
And the new enemy was a group of communists. And a lot of the tensions within the United States were happening in the South and in urban centers, and they were racial tensions. And so anytime you have a triumvirate of different influences, different things to be concerned about, there are going to be certain groups of people that, with the best intentions, will look at that and say, okay, I cannot even deal with this and go flee. And in this case, they were being encouraged on all sides, economically and by the government, by their own cultural perception. You know, when your friends move there and then your other friends move there, then you probably want to move there as well. And so this was an effect that was amplified because there were so many different variables contributing to it. And this ties into and feeds a lot of other issues that are much bigger concepts that I won't get into now, maybe on a future episode. But the development and the perpetuation of uh, ghettos within the United States, for example, were partially the result of white flight and other versions of it, where certain elements of an economic class start to move out, and then the incentive to screw people over and not upkeep buildings and to keep people segregated within certain parts of town, that effect is amplified and leads to a lot of incredibly unfortunate consequences. But we touched on briefly the idea of designed cities. We had the English that were looking out into all of these open fields that they had and realizing we've got a lot of open space and we've got all of our people crammed in these little tiny areas. It's making us incredibly unhealthy. Maybe we can do it better. And there was a very popular movement for a little while there, just for a decade or two, called the Garden City Movement that had very specific ideas about the ideal living situation in terms of how certain gardens and certain parks and certain streets should all be laid out. If you look it up, it's kind of like a feng shui for how to lay out a city, but very like a very British version of that that was derived from literature rather than spirituality. But they're not the only ones to have stumbled upon or developed the idea of pre-planned cities and urban planning. This is absolutely something that was happening within the United States. But when you look at more authoritarian governments, but also in particular governments that tend to have five-year plans and that have more planned economies as well, uh, the Soviet Union and its satellite states, lots and lots of pre-planned cities. You look at China today, they've got a massive number of pre-planned cities and they are of massive scale. The unfortunate thing, and we saw it back then within the Soviet Union, and we see it today in places like Phoenix, Arizona, in the United States, where we just overbuilt these crazy pre-planned communities. And then you see all of the massive ghost towns, the ghost metropolises in China, is that we end up planning using theory. Here's the theory of how people will live, what they will want, where they will go, what path would be most convenient for them in theory. But in reality, and when it comes down to feet hitting the pavement and actual use day to day, these places just don't perform the way that they should. A, a good analogy to this is another element of the Soviets' pre-planned economy where they were determining how many nails they would need, how many paper clips, how many things like that, basics that they would need every year. And they'd say, okay, we need two million nails this year. Well, of course, I mean, there's no way to know, no reliable way to know how many nails you will use in a year. And they had constant shortages of some things and constantly overproduced 
other things as a result. While the same is true typically within pre-planned cities and towns and suburban areas, the things that look very good on paper and that seem to fit the data and that seem to fit historical precedent very seldom survive people moving in. (laughs) Because as soon as people move in, then reality takes hold and they realize, oh, this one thing messed up and that impacts that and that impacts this. And it kind of reverberates out of control. All of these little things add up and add up and add up. And eventually these places become either incredibly unpleasant or people start moving out or different sorts of people start moving in than the people they initially planned. There's a lot of different ways for the land value to drop then as a result or for people to default on the loans that they took out. And what we end up with then is a situation kind of like in Phoenix, as I mentioned before where we had all of these subdivisions that were built in the middle of nowhere, and they were gorgeous and really well-made, but nobody wanted them because they forgot to build this one thing or because it didn't have this other thing or they didn't have easy access to the place they wanted to go. And so we built our own ghost towns, beautiful ghost towns. In a lot of cases, too, these pre-planned communities are built for a particular purpose or priority but not necessarily for the inhabitants' priorities. In a lot of cases, these priorities might be consumption. It might be that they build the communities around a mall or a shopping center. And it makes perfect sense because a lot of this development was actually spurred and then supported by and amplified by the concept of the American dream. And the American dream for the purposes of this conversation, there's a lot that goes into it. Part of it was that Having your own home and your own yard and a two-car garage and and a wife and two and a half kids. But part of it, too, is the idea of McMansions, which is the natural progression of that idea. If having a home and two cars in the garage is somebody's dream, well, if I'm as awesome as I think I am, that means I need a bigger one. I need four cars in the garage. I need a much bigger lawn. And as these homes and as the lawns and and as the number of garages that you have on your home increases, the desire to fill those spaces also increase. And we end up with a huge consumption problem that we still struggle with today. This is not something that's been solved, unfortunately. Even very small homes tend to have a lot of wasted space. It's something like 40% of our homes we actually use regularly, and the rest is just wasted space that we're paying rent for and that we're cleaning, and that we're storing stuff in, because we don't want empty space. That looks weird. And so we buy stuff to fill up that space. And so city planning takes this into account. If they're going to give us great big spaces, they're going to put us next to places where we can buy things to put in those empty spaces. And then perhaps the most troublesome thing about these pre-planned cities and suburbs is that they fail to account for any type of growth or change or evolution, not just in the number of people there, but in global infrastructure and technology. They, they fail to account for a surge of people and an influx and the desire to maybe continue extending in a certain direction. And as a result, you end up with suburbs that have very high population densities, just like the cities, the people there are trying to escape. Or maybe you end up with another suburb built next door that's newer and shinier and a slightly higher end, and then your suburb decreases in value as a result. But then consider things like telephones, landlines. 
as a result of the mobile phone revolution and the internet revolution. We have all of these phone booths all over the world that are just sitting there. Not completely useless in certain elements of society, but we certainly don't need as many of them as we have now. And there's things like this everywhere within society. Things that at the moment were vitally important, but when we develop past them, when we come up with something new, we end up with all of this antique infrastructure that we can either keep and continue to upkeep at great expense and increasingly greater expense as the rest of the world moves on to other things and the parts and components and know-how that we need becomes more and more in demand. Or we pay an exorbitant amount of money to replace it all, to take out all of the phone booths, to take out all of this type of cable, to run a new type of cable, to start building with different materials because we found out asbestos causes cancer. There's a lot of these issues that emerge over time, and unfortunately, most planned communities do not take this into account. They tend to be beautiful dioramas representing a very particular point in time, but their viability long term is very much in question, and that's something that we're seeing a whole lot today for multiple reasons. Now, one of the changes that we're beginning to see today is that for the first time since like 1950, people are moving toward urban areas rather than away from them. Uh, in 1950, I think, was the year that, for the first time ever, more people lived in suburbs in the United States than cities. And since then, pretty much up until the last decade or so, that's been the case. But in the last decade or so, there's been some major changes, all different types of reasons that people are moving there. But a lot of them tie back to this one idea, and it's, it's the difference between car scale and people scale. And if you look at the U.S., a lot of the East Coast was developed early on. This was stuff that was built out and fleshed out in the age of horse and buggy and in the age of trains. But the further west you go, the more likely you are to see cities that were developed in the time of the automobile. And L.A. is a perfect example of this. It is just car hell. You, you cannot get around without owning a car there except for downtown. And a lot of other cities are like that as well. And it makes perfect sense. You know, when these cities were built, cars were the bomb. Cars were the thing that everybody was investing in. We had no reason to believe that the car boom would ever subside. And we were building out the superhighway system and the dice were rolled and everything was coming up car. And as a result, we ended up building our cities. We ended up building our suburbs. We ended up building everything in car scale. And that means that it doesn't matter if you can walk to a grocery store. If you can drive there, that's close enough. When you leave your home, it doesn't matter that you can't get anywhere just by walking because you're going to get in your car anyway. The city was built for the car. So this affects convenience issues like that. But even the city itself, even the look and feel of it is based on a car rather than a human being. We need these great big avenues and thoroughfares and streets because we're prioritizing car traffic over pedestrian traffic. And you can definitely feel that difference if you try to walk down a street in Phoenix, Arizona, compared to walking down a street in Paris. You see the difference immediately. A people-scale city is shaped and proportioned for a human being without a car around them. And that tends to feel quite a bit more comfortable. And this is something that we're gravitating toward significantly more than we were back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 
we were still romanticizing the car then. And there's a big pushback against that idea. Now that we've seen the downsides of these pre-planned suburban areas and, and the, the commute economy to begin with. I mean, suburbs were built because of the commute. They were built to allow people to have affordable housing while still working in the city. And today, for a lot of people, the idea of getting in your car and driving for however long it takes you to get to work simply doesn't make sense anymore. Now, something often attributed to the myriad variables that go into something being car scale or people scale is that these planned, organized, separated areas tend to be quite sterile and identityless. Because if you break them all apart and you put where people live separate from where they live, like you, you have their homes separate from where they go to get a drink, separate from where they go to work, separate from where they go to meet up with friends, then you don't get the shared culture between those areas. You tend to lack the unpredictability. And unpredictability is valuable to the creative process. You don't accidentally run into people on the way to and from work because you're getting in your car. You end up instilling a sense of homogeny to all these different places. And so every workplace begins to look like every other workplace. Every place where you go to sleep begins to look like every other place where you go to sleep. There's no cross-pollination between these different cultures because we've built everything bento box-like so that it has its own little compartment. And in a lot of cases, the way these areas are planned out to begin with are planned by technocrats. It's planned by people who are higher up. And so they don't necessarily understand the needs of the people, the working class man and woman who are living in these places. And so everything begins to look grittable. Everything begins to look like something you can put on a spreadsheet. And when it comes to people and how they live and what makes them happy and fulfilled, that's almost never the case. You look at a lot of places around the world that do this on an epic scale. You look at uh, Singapore is a great example of this. It's a city-state, so it's like 5 million people that live in one city, and that's their entire country. And it has, for its entire existence, been predicated on incredibly rational organizational principles. And some of these have worked really well. They've done incredibly well in certain ways, but a lot of people, even Singapore's biggest fans, I quite enjoyed Singapore, and I feel this way, they feel that it is quite sterile, and it is something that lacks a little bit of its own vibe. Most cities of a scale of 5 million people feel like something specific. You can go into that city and say, oh, this feels like New York, or this feels like LA, this feels like Paris, this feels like London, this feels like Hong Kong. But in Singapore, it just feels like it's a place, and there's a lot of people, and there's food, and there's places to live, and it feels incredibly practical. But it doesn't feel like any happy accidents ever occur. It feels like everything is planned out to the nth degree. There are, of course, pros and cons to that. Lots of pros, I would argue, but, but the cons tend to outweigh the pros for a lot of people. Because in terms of quality of life, if your priorities are to make some money and be perfectly safe from any perceived threat, that type of really well-orchestrated, really well-planned community could be very appealing. But I think most people's priorities deviate from those two things substantially. There are a lot of different efforts to plan 
for the same vibe that you would find in an unplanned location. Pre-planned cities, pre-planned suburbs, places like that, to try to make them feel as if they're not planned. So they're trying to avoid feeling like Singapore and trying to feel more like Brooklyn, where you have something that kind of grows willy-nilly and it's considered like a bad place to live and then it flourishes culturally and becomes like a cool new spot that everybody wants to go and becomes too expensive for anybody else to live there. There's actually apparently a pretty extreme effort by some investment banks to invest in a lot of the same types of businesses that typically spring up right before a city or a town or a suburb area has a Brooklyn moment. When people start to perceive it as being very cool and all the prices on everything goes up and it starts to feel like something very unique. And so they'll go into a town and they'll buy up as much real estate as possible and then they'll start investing in like a cool secondhand store and a cool hipster coffee shop and a vegan restaurant. And then over the course of five or ten years, when the place becomes very cool, they knock down a lot of the buildings that were there and they start to build condos, something that I've come to call gentrification condos, because they tend to herald the arrival of people who are very moneyed into an area where traditionally it hasn't been people who are very wealthy. And then those traditional occupants are forced to move out and go someplace where they can actually afford to live. And a bunch of people who work in a more moneyed sector, like in technology or energy, all move in and go to the hipster coffee shops and the vegan restaurants. Silicon Valley, San Francisco in general, is a great example of this. But there's a lot of different places where this is happening right now. And it's in an effort in a lot of cases by investors, real estate investors in particular, to take advantage of this unplanned value gain in certain areas that happens typically as a result of natural evolution and cross-pollination of ideas, but they are trying to catalyze that artificially. I learned a term while researching this episode. There is a type of element that you can add to a city, that you can build into a city when you're trying to plan it out, that allows you to grow that city and evolve that city and change that city over time. And the theory behind this is called tactical urbanism. And the idea is that you essentially work modular elements like pedestrian bridges and plazas and arcades and green belts. Uh, they've got a great green belt in Atlanta, Georgia, that goes around the city and it's built where the old train line was. And that's essentially what these are. These are different elements that you can either reappropriate old infrastructure and turn them into something new based on the changing times, or you can build in new elements that adds an additional level, sometimes quite literally an additional level, like a second story or a third story for pedestrians to walk on. And this is all in an effort to keep a city feeling livable in order to keep it a place where people want to live. In a lot of cases, the way this is being applied right now is in cities that have been built car scale, they are building skyways and pedestrian bridges and cycling bridges and bike lanes on the streets in order to allow more people to walk and bike and interact with each other and go to that little coffee shop on the street that nobody would stop at if they were in a car because there's no parking. 
And it's very clever. It's a very clever utilization, reutilization, rebirth of these elements. And a lot of them, the most popular ones from what I've seen, are the reappropriated ones. And so a lot of the investment is simply in changing something rather than tearing something out and putting in something shiny and new. And that allows a city to keep something of its history while still allowing it to change with the times, to change as the people living in it change. And that's important, really. I mean, having a high quality of life in a city can mean the difference between it being a thriving, culturally sophisticated neighborhood and being a ghost town. We are cresting the horizon on a whole slew of new options in terms of communication, transportation, construction, commerce, housing, so many industries. Fleets of autonomous, on-demand cars and cheap sustainable power and building materials that soak up CO2 instead of adding more to the atmosphere. Employment opportunities that don't require a commute at all, that don't require you to leave your home or your bed. Dormitory-like shared space apartment complexes, modular and prefab housing. 3D printing, which will allow us to potentially print a lot of things that we would otherwise go shopping for. And urban gardens, farm scrapers, farms contained within skyscrapers, which bring fresh food to urban centers and prevent food deserts. All of these things allow us to spend a lot less time in transit, commuting, the way that we would have in the past, the recent past. They allow us to be much more selective in terms of where we live, so we can choose a lot of the work that we do and the places that we sleep and where we spend our time based on our priorities in terms of culture and the places that we really enjoy, the places that resonate with us, rather than the places that just happen to be within commuting distance of the office that we have to go sit at. These are innovations that have already and will continue to change everything about the way that we live and the way that we work, the places we spend most of our time. And who knows, maybe with the right upgrades, even the suburban model could be dragged kicking and screaming into the present day, which is also the future. A planned community like that might make more sense if we've got really smart technology built in, and if we build in features that also allow it to evolve as the people evolve and their needs evolve. But for the moment, at least, there's a reason that people around the world are flooding into cities at an unprecedented rate, and at the moment, because of the current state of suburbs, namely that they tend to suck. I don't see that changing anytime soon. Whether you're living out on the countryside or in a thronging metropolis, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Let's Know Things. If you're digging the show, I would very much appreciate it if you'd take a second to leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving some stars and writing up a quick review makes a great big difference for a new show like this one, and it helps me reach a much larger audience. You can also support the show by contributing a dollar per episode, more if you like, but a dollar per episode would be awesome. You can find out how to make such a contribution at letsknowthings.com. 
Or you can purchase one of my books. I've written 30-some-odd books of different genres. And you can find a complete list of those at colin.io. If you want to receive the free Let's Know Things newsletter, which is sent out weekly and contains a collection of links lovingly curated by me, you can subscribe at letsknowthings.com. And if you want to comment on this episode or share some interesting links of your own or just say hello, pop on over to the LKT Facebook page at facebook.com slash letsknowthings. I'm Colin Wright. Thank you very much for listening. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Every little thing that you gotta have Every little thing that you gotta have You gotta reach for And you gotta grab Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it so take your eyes away, or take.